Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. It's Monday, May the 9th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. The count is complete and the results of the Stormont Assembly election are in. But what do they tell us about the contemporary politics of Northern Ireland and about the road ahead for the devolved executive as well as the Northern Irish protocol between the EU and the UK and indeed for the broader constitutional questions on the North's future status? To examine the tea leaves on all of this this morning, we have our Northern editor, Freya Clements, Assistant News Editor, Mary Minahan, and political editor Pat Leahy. Freya, I'm going to go to you first because you've been on the ground. I'm sure you're exhausted at this stage after three days of counts and reactions and all the rest of it. But I woke up yesterday morning with a um, uh, with an awful lot of people attacking me on Twitter because I had dared to be a bit cynical about the overuse of the word seismic on news reports across the world, not just in Ireland, about the results of, of Thursday's election. Um, I was just objecting to the uh, kind of journalistic laziness of the word. But a lot of people, certainly a lot of people with green, white and orange flags in their social media profiles seem to suggest that I was underplaying the significance of a nationalist party, and Sinn Féin in particular, becoming the largest party in Northern Ireland after 101 years of unionist domination. That wasn't something that figured hugely during the campaign discussions themselves, but then it seemed to pop up as being more significant than we thought. Did we underplay it? during the campaign? Well, first of all, I'm going to hold my hand up as one of these journalists who was writing the word seismic and then I actually read your tweet and then I I, I borrowed you in, in some of the, the media broadcasts that I, I was do, doing over the weekend and I was sort of joking that we need to need to stop using this word. But actually, I you know, I, I do think it, it's hugely significant and I think it's really important to, to stress this because you also have to look at, you know, wh- where Northern Ireland has come from and, and you know, not simply from you know, Northern Ireland being set up 101 years ago, you know, to paraphrase as this unionist state where this unionist majority was built in. And we look at, you know, where the civil rights movement came from, you know, that was about gerrymandering, you know, that, that, that was about the vote being manipulated to keep a unionist majority in power. So to get that, you know, 100 years on from 101 years on from the foundation of Northern Ireland, that there is a nationalist first minister, you know, there has never been a nationalist in that top spot um, in in the history of Northern Ireland ever. And I mean, again, I think of some of the people that I've talked to who went on those civil rights marches, you know, that's just something that they would would have thought was was completely, completely unthinkable. And and you can get into as as much as you like about the fact that this is only a a symbolic office. And I mean, yes, you know, Sinn Féin have been at the head of government jointly with with, with the DUP, um, you know, for about 15 years at at this stage, you know, but the fact remains that something something has has shifted um, uh, quite you know, what the, the extent of this significance will, will be, I don't know. But, you know, it, it, it is a change. It is significant. It is seismic. And I mean, you, you're right about, you're right about the, the, the election campaign. It wasn't really played up 
um, really until the DUP came onto the, the, the pitch on, on this. And, and a, a, another um, colleague of mine, Brian Rowan, sort of described this as the, the, the quiet crocodile moment, if you like, which is a great phrase because you'll remember that Arlene Foster's comment about the crocodiles um, in the last, ahead of the last election in 2017. And that was a real kind of galvanizing force for, for nationalism. And it made nationalists go, go out and vote and, and vote for, for Sinn Féin as potentially the, the, the largest nationalist party. And, and they had a fantastic election result that that, that that year. And what what this did was because the, the DUP consistently in interviews, Jeffrey Donaldson refused to answer this question of, of whether they would go into government as deputy first minister alongside um, a Sinn Féin first minister. And that, that, that angered people and, and not just Sinn Féin voters, nationalist voters in general, and actually voters across all political persuasions. I mean, you know, I spoke to people who who would not describe themselves as nationalists who said, look, this is just about equality. This just feels unfair. You know, know, this is democratic. This is about, you know, there is an election and and somebody wins and somebody loses and you respect the result and and you get get on with it. So it it, it was undoubtedly a a galvanising force encouraging people to vote for for Sinn Féin. And it's one of the things that the STLP has has pointed to who had the worst uh, result of, of, of all the main parties is one of the things that they have pointed to. They said it, it just eroded their vote because people were voting for Sinn Féin because this that because the, the, this this was was what was what what was what was at stake, you know. Um, so and I mean, interesting. Just the, this morning on, on BBC Radio Ulster, Gary Middleton, uh, DUP MLA um, junior minister, was asked that that question about. Um, and obviously, we we'll go on and talk about the wrangles about about the protocol and, and the stalemate that we're facing into. But but I asked that question about if this was resolved, would the DUP nominate a deputy first minister? Um, and and he, he he said yes. He said we're we're Democrats. You know, the issue here is about the protocol. We, we are Democrats. So he would appear to have cleared that one up this morning. Yeah, and there was kind of indications of that from Paul Given and other DUP uh, MLAs over the course of the weekend. But uh, Mary, it's it's not the first time that the DUP has done Sinn Féin a favour and indeed Sinn Féin has arguably done the DUP a favour sometimes. There is an argument about the dynamic of Northern politics, uh, Mary Minahan, that, that sometimes drives like that, that the two larger... Uh, less centrist representatives of nationalism and unionism, respectively, kind of have a kind of feed off each other sometimes. Thanks, Hugh. Yeah, it's interesting to uh, look back on the history of the First Minister, Deputy First Minister Office and the kind of relationships that have taken place in that office. If you think way back to uh, Hand of History time, June 98, when Mo Molan appointed John Alderdice, presiding officer, and then David Trimble of the UUP and Seamus Mallon, then of the SDLP, became First Minister, Deputy First Minister. And I think in that time, although we knew those offices were co-equal, the SDLP was kind of doing David Trimble a favour, kind of giving him a concession, allowing himself to call himself First Minister. It sounded slightly superior, although in reality it wasn't. It was one of those kind of uh, euphemistic things that kept the show on the road in Northern Ireland and it suited that time. And then the shifting voting pattern saw Ian Paisley of the DUP and Martin McGuinness of Sinn Féin take the roles, then Robinson and McGuinness 
McGuinness, then Arlene Foster and McGuinness, then Foster and Michelle O'Neill, then Paul Given and O'Neill, and then O'Neill and to be confirmed, I suppose, if it all gets up and running. So those kind of shifting patterns have kept going. And Jeffrey Donaldson facing into this election, I think, had the two big problems, and that was the protocol, which no doubt we'll get to, and the concept of playing second fiddle to Sinn Féin. And as Frey has been saying, I think from comments uh, by people like Gary Middleton, who's got that really marginal seat in foil, uh, that that uh, second item is going to be overcome and the Democratic Unionist Party is going to demonstrate that it is a, a Democratic Party and allow Sinn Féin to take the top position, unless there's something done about the titles. I don't know, you couldn't rule that out completely. Like my take on it, uh, fairly simply, a very good day for Sinn Féin. DUP did much better than the polls were predicting. The party certainly didn't crash and burn in any sense at all. But the key thing is that there's a new tribe in town, and that's the Alliance Party. And as a consequence of that, there's a squeezed middle and it's other centrist parties like the SDLP and to a lesser extent the UUP that are cannibalised. Although, as Freya has said, the SDLP also suffered from the fact that there was, I think, a genuine loaning of votes to Sinn Féin in this instance. You, you know, obviously the SDLP has been leaking votes to Sinn Féin for many a long year now. And you would have thought that that was at capacity. But uh, Colm Eastwood certainly said uh, the other day that he felt a lot of people had loaned their votes to Sinn Féin just because they were so grossly offended by what Jeffrey Donaldson had been saying during the campaign where he seemed to be indicating that even if people did come out and vote in big numbers for a nationalist stroke Republican First Minister that 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 wouldn't happen. Mary, is that a kind of a defensive uh, argument by by the SDLP? I wonder, I mean, you're a dairy girl yourself and I look at the, the results from, from FOIL and the SDLP were optimistic there because they'd had a fantastic turnaround at the last general election. It really wiped the floor with Sinn Féin. So they ran three candidates. They never had a hope of winning two seats. Sinn Féin reasserted themselves as the largest party again. Doesn't that say something about, you know, the underlying long-term trends? Yeah, I think it does. I think it's also worth bearing in mind that um, Colm Eastwood uh, got that very, very big result in that Westminster election. And it probably says something about the fact that Sinn Féin doesn't take their seats in Westminster and the SDLP does. And uh, in 2019, Colm Eastwood got a a bigger vote than Hume, which is pretty damn impressive uh, in Derry or anywhere else. So, you know, I think what happened... Uh, in this assembly election in FOIL, uh, Sinn Féin ran to, I don't want to describe them as unknown candidates because obviously they're very well known in Derry, but uh, Kira Ferguson and Podrick Delargy wouldn't be that well known outside of the FOIL constituency, put it that way. In some senses, they were unknown quantities and they didn't have a national political profile. But I, I think this argument that uh, the desire to have a nationalist first minister kind of it was a greater thing and it, it, it overrode. And certainly that was, I think, in all the literature that was coming into houses from uh, Sinn Féin in the FOIL constituency. That was the, the key thing, you know, that there was a possibility of getting uh, a nationalist stroke Republican first minister. And, you know, I, I, I think this... Th- 
what a lot of uh, the DUP's opponents would kind of describe as a supremacy complex that they feel the DUP has. That that was, as we say, the crocodile moment. It, it kind of went under the radar a little bit, but it was definitely there and it offended a lot of people. So just to be a bit geeky about it in terms of where the, where the SDLP needed to be, like its first preference share in 2017 was uh, 31.8%, but I think it needed to be up at the 39, 40% to kind of get uh, three people across. You know, it's sitting, it was sitting on just under two quotas. So it needed quite a big swing to get, uh, you know, you can have these disputes after an election, I think. And, and sometimes parties say, for God's sake, why didn't we run another candidate there? Sometimes they're saying we ran too many. And in this case, that's probably what happened. They needed a big swing to get three seats and that just wasn't going to happen on that day. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. Hey! Get out of here! I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. Pat, um, we're all fascinated by the mechanics of the PRSTV electoral system, which operates on, on both sides of the border, on, on the island of Ireland, particularly fascinated over the course of the weekend to watch how it was working in the north. The, the most striking thing was that some parties really maximised their vote-to-seat ratio. I think three parties, you could say, Sinn Féin, uh, the DUP did very well in terms of the number of seats they got for the number of votes they got. An alliance did terrifically. The TUV did appallingly, the traditional unionist voice. They got nearly... 7% of the vote and they were stuck at at just one seat. Um, how did they manage to get such a bad result out of such a good vote, Pat? Well, partly because of poor management, but also partly because there is within the mathematical architecture of the electoral system a number of steps. And if you get over that, if you get over that step, you, you get a seat. So if you're pulling in in a five seat constituency, okay, you need, you know, whatever, 16 odd percent of the, uh, of the vote to, to get a quota. So, you know, theoretically, all votes being distributed equally, you could get below that everywhere and uh and and not get a seat now of course you know the way votes just uh, votes are tend to be distributed is not like that but the same you know mathematical or uh, principle works that you can get a scatter of votes and you see this you know with the the jumps that parties tend to take you know if their vote can go up by a relatively small percentage but if they get over one of those steps they can win uh, a whole heap of seats and to some extent that's what uh, that's what happened to the alliance but what happened to the TUV is merely i think uh, it's an extreme example of uh, of of the principle one of the mathematical principles that uh, that underpins the system i mean you look at the DUP which through the fact that through the fact of 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 the twin facts of decent vote management, but also the fact that their vote fell w- almost within those two steps, if you know what I mean, that it, 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 they were fortunate that uh, even though their vote in percentage terms 
saw a, a very significant drop. They they dropped from just below one step to just above uh, the succeeding step with the result that they managed to hold on to one of their seats. And that was, uh, you know, that was an outstanding result in, term, in vote management terms for them in the circumstances. But what you would see is that if the DUP's vote dropped again in the next election by a comparable amount, then they would lose a whole heap of seats. Just as if the TUV managed to increase by a similar amount in the next election, they would then, a whole range of seats would then fall into their their laps. That's a very good point. And Freya, what does that mean about the incentives and the, the, the strategic points which the DUP need to hit over the next six months or so? Um, Presumably, I mean, they kind of got away with it this time, didn't they? In terms of the TUV not hitting those marks that Pat is talking about, doesn't mean they won't get away. That doesn't mean they'll get away with it the next time. That has to be fairly significant in their thinking, doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean, you know, you could say, well, there are, you know, other more more immediately pressing questions right now. But actually, in in theory, you know, we we could be back sort of looking at at another election protect potentially in sort of uh, six to eight months. So maybe this is a much more pressing conversation um, than it might be otherwise. I mean, the DUP got it right in terms of their electoral strategy. This time they played a very defensive strategy. So last time around in 2017, they they returned 28 um, MLAs. This time around, they only ran 30 candidates so they were playing a defensive strategy and and they they, they were they, they benefited it in a sense that that they had they had a bit of space they had a bit of a cushion so this time around there was only one constituency in which they ran three candidates uh, only two were elected um but th- there were a good number of constituencies where they had they ran three the previous time and had elected two and there was maybe half a quota sitting from the other candidate so they had a fair idea that this would enable them to get two candidates over the line this this time now the problem with this is that in in the next election they haven't got that cushion um so if their vote share continues to to decline you would imagine that they would lose they would you would see them losing more seats and and so that this is why even though there was really quite a wide gap between them and Sinn Féin in the polls this is why the seat numbers um th- there wasn't su- such a difference in term in terms of number of of seats i mean other factors to throw into this you know the TUV will be energized on the one hand because their their vote share went up so significantly although that you know they were going from a very low base they they were disappointed that they didn't um get another MLA elected i mean in Strangford one of the constituencies the, the candidate there polled over five thousand first preference votes, um, which which is, is is remarkable. Um, to be perfectly honest, for 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 a party coming from that kind kind of base, so and again, this will be one of one of the the big um questions for the DUP because the TUV are even further to to the right. They're they're even more hardline. I mean, they're. they're not just anti-protocol, but their anti-agreement. And th- this is why we saw immediately, even while the votes were still being counted, we saw this appeal to unionist unity and and, and the DUP making the point that this is where seats are lost. It, it's where unionism fragments. So they need to stop this drift away to the TUV and try and pull some of those voters back back to them. Because had though those votes not gone to the TUV, you know, you can speculate about, you, you know, m- might the, the DUP have been, in, have been in, in a stronger position today. But, you know, it's so difficult to speculate on all of this because 
so much of this is going to depend on what happens with the protocol. And I'm sure we're going to going to discuss this. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. I promise. I promise. We are. We are going to get to the protocol pretty much now, actually. But because Mary, I'm, uh, I was reading Newton Emerson, who was extremely critical, uh, scornful, I would say, of the of the UP strategy during the election. Said that the, it had been a political failure, but the same backroom staff are still there, and they're still. St- stuck with the same people and he was fairly sardonic about the kind of dance of uh, the dance around the Northern Ireland Protocol that the DUP will now as he predicts it, engage in while they wait for something to happen that they can, that the DUP can claim as a victory and then go back into the executive. Is that the kind of the the area of the game now that we're going to get some cosmetic, relatively negligible uh, adjustments to the protocol and then the DUP march back in and it's Michelle O'Neill and um, Jeffrey Donaldson as first first and deputy first ministers. Is that it? Do do we just, you know the way sometimes Northern Irish politics is like a kabuki and you just know that that's where it's going to end up in the end. You make it all sound so simple. Yeah. (laughs) I know it's not. You tell me. No, um, hopefully that is where we will get. And I I think that is what people have voted for. But of course, there are complicating factors that wouldn't have been in place uh, at the time of other assembly elections. And Brexit is is the huge one. Uh, And I think, you know, as it's always worth repeating it, that Northern Ireland didn't vote for Brexit, although all the unionist parties in Northern Ireland were in favour of Brexit and uh, are in favour of doing something about the protocol, what they can do, what they can have done about it. We just don't know. I mean, I think as Brexit continues to bite, this is going to really, really complicate things even more. And uh, it's, it's correct to say that the EU has moved on the protocol. It has made some concessions on very important things like medicines and so on. It's not quite clear to me what concessions have been made by the other side, uh, if you want to call Britain the other side in that equation, uh, because, of course, Ireland is aligned with Europe on it. But um, it's just unclear at the moment, Hugh. And uh, on on Friday night, when Per Freya and others were slaving away uh, up at the Titanic Centre, where I'm sure jokes about icebergs abounded, but I was uh, in uh, watching Paddy Keelty uh, doing his wonderful show in Dunleary. And uh, uh, it was really a really fascinating night to do it, you know, on Friday night, the night of the elections. I mean, he's never short of material anyway, but that night in particular, he wasn't. Uh, I think he thought maybe he was going to have a bit of fun poking fun at uh, a lot of posh South County Dublin people, but he might have been a bit disappointed that every naughty South of the Liffey came out to see him. (laughs) (laughs) So he didn't have to explain his jokes too much, but it's a touring show he's doing. And um, he told about when he went to Larn and he said to them up there, it's great to be back on the border. (laughs) And he was met with that. A very frosty silence from a considerable section of the audience because uh, I'm, I'm sure your knowledge of, of uh, Nornarn geography is excellent. But uh, for those who don't know, Lorna isn't actually on the border as we know it. 
but uh, it is on the new border, the the sea border, uh, which seems to have been created. So, you know, it's it's, it's really, also a heavily unionist town. It is indeed. It is indeed, which has just elected a new Frey will know more about this, but has just elected uh, its first woman and its first uh, alliance MLA. Um, but the Paddy Keelty show, it's really interesting, you know, for anybody who's interested in identity and borders and so on. Incidentally, his show is called uh, Borderline, which is, is a great title for a fantastic show. <laughs> Some, somebody should somebody should do something with that. Our people should talk to his people, Freya. Uh, this is the title. We might as well do the direct plug here. Yourself, Mary, yourself and Freya have, uh, did, 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 have, have done a very good uh, podcast series called Borderline. You can find it on irishtimes.com slash podcast. Thank you so much for mentioning that spontaneously, Hugh. I think that's um, what Mary was angling for. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, there were obviously there's a lot of laughs at a show like that, but there, you know, an awful lot of uh, very serious moments as well, which Paddy Keelty very skillfully we- uh, weaves in. And I think most people know that Paddy Keelty's father was killed by loyalist paramilitaries. So, you know, he talks about that in the show. Uh, still managing to get laughs about it, which is pretty incredible. But he says that when that happened to his family, a lot of people rallied round and, you know, obviously the community embraced the Keelty family, but nobody actually said they were very surprised, you know, and he talked about how we uh, people who grew up in the north of that generation were kind of, you know, bubbling away in a sectarian stew. And the awful thing about it was when these things happened, we almost weren't surprised by them. So, you know, I suppose that is when he spells it out like that, you realise the kind of society we're talking about, a very, very damaged, a very, very fragmented society. So, you know, those things just aren't going to be smoothed out overnight. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm happy to hear the comments from the likes of Gary Middleton and so on this morning when it seems that uh, Jeffrey Donaldson has has kind of got over, maybe not quite got over, but is coming to terms with the idea of playing second fiddle to Sinn Féin. Because, I mean, if that couldn't be got over, that would be absolutely appalling. You know, if a, a Democratic Party had to spell out why it couldn't go in to a power sharing executive, uh, you know, with a few less seats than another a democratic party because it couldn't get over, uh, you know, it couldn't, uh, it couldn't play second fiddle. That would be very, very, very difficult and impossible. But I think we're back to the protocol again. That's where uh, the big problem lies. And I think certainly from a Dublin perspective, you're going to see uh, uh, Simon Coveney up and down the road an awful lot over the summer, over the next few months. Um, you know, trying to get to some kind of a, I'm not sure we're going to get to a solution anytime quickly, but trying to get some kind of concession. And it gets more and more difficult, I think, particularly, you mentioned you mentioned social media at the start, Hugh. I think this is where it gets hard because it's it's not like in 1998 where um, Seamus Mallon could go in with David Trimble and the SDLP and the UUP could come up with this deal where someone was called First Minister, someone was called Deputy First Minister. Uh, they were actually co-equal, but they had a slightly different title and this helped uh, David Trimble to bring his... Unionist Party along with him and his electorate along with him. You know, I think it's just so much more 
everything's so much more and correctly so exposed and out in the open now thanks to social media you just you couldn't get away with a fudge like that these days I don't think so it's very very hard to uh, you know give Jeffrey Donaldson something that he can claim as a big victory or as a big concession because you know there isn't going to be a big victory or a big concession over the protocol it's it's going to be a very slight um, just moving things around very very slightly so it's just going to be hard to uh, with all the opponents that Jeffrey Donaldson has not uh, I'm thinking more inside unionism than outside unionism it's going to be very very hard for him to claim some kind of a victory no matter no matter what he gets at the end of this process and of course, Pat, there's, a, there's an awful lot of moving parts in this and the internal tensions within unionism are only one of those many parts. I mean, there was a there was a flurry of reaction just hours, I think, before last week's election when Brandon Lewis, the, the Northern Secretary, seemed to backtrack on proposals to include um, unilateral action on the Northern Ireland Protocol in the next term in Westminster. So there's a lot of confusion about what what is being planned, what is being signalled, whether the negotiations are going to get anywhere uh, and whether they'll work. What, what is the view from Dublin at the moment? How uh, optimistic or pessimistic are people in, in Marion Street and the Department of Foreign Affairs? Yeah, somewhere, somewhere between optimism and pessimism, I think, um, at, at the moment. I mean, you know, there's a lot of discussion about whatever Jeffrey Donaldson might accept uh, as a concession on the protocol. I, I, I must say, I, I don't see anywhere else for him to go. And one of the things that you know, an electoral defeat or the loss of seats in an in an election does to political leaders is that it narrows their options. And it's hard to see what options that Donaldson has now, apart from agreeing to a new deal on the protocol and then, you know, and then going in and making the institutions uh, work insofar as that's possible. The alternative to that is facing uh, the electorate again in six months' time. And I, I find it hard to see a context in which that would happen that wouldn't result uh, in, in defeat again for the DUP. And of course, as we mentioned earlier, another defeat for the DUP would probably be a lot more damaging in terms of the number of seats work. With regard to the negotiations. So we're talking about what Jeffrey wants or what Jeffrey uh, will settle for. But actually, you know, Jeffrey's not involved in these negotiations. Uh, you know, the negotiations are between the government of the United Kingdom and uh, and the European Commission. And obviously, the Irish government plays a role probably on both sides in that. Michal Martin has said that he does believe that there is a landing ground, as he calls it, identified, which will involve the removal of most checks. They talk about the EU has table proposals that would lead, they say, to the removal of something like 80% of the checks that are there at the moment, which from a unionist and loyalist perspective are quite uh, in uh, are quite intrusive. And, you know, I, I go some of the way with the point that I think Newton has made, again, about the, you know, the slight absurdity of the idea that the mighty single market of the EU of 500 million people is threatened by the importation of some pork pies into uh, into Larne, you know. But there does seem to be a willingness in the EU to come to an accommodation that, you know, might not be acceptable 
uh, in, you know, comp- you know, on another part of the EU's external border, but might just work for, uh, for Northern Ireland. Where I think the problem could arise is not so much in Brussels or in Dublin or indeed in Belfast. It's with the British government. And there is very little trust either in Brussels are in Dublin that the British government are playing this one with uh, with a straight bat. And there has been a suspicion, though this is strenuously denied by British government sources that I've spoken to, but there is a suspicion, both in Brussels and in Dublin, that Boris Johnson wants a certain level of conflict with the uh, with the EU because it is good for him domestically. And and that perception is there. And I think the British government will have to work to overcome it. I'm not sure I really go along with it because I think whatever rows that Boris Johnson may or may not want to have with the EU, the fact of the matter is that voters in the UK, the voters who handed the Tories a thrashing at the local elections last week, most of them don't really care about Northern Ireland. So Boris going to bat for uh, for the North and for Northern unionism against the EU is not something from which I think he can derive a great degree of political capital. Freya, can I go back to the overall big picture in Northern Ireland, particularly in terms of what Mary was 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 saying there a little little while ago about about the past that everybody in Northern Ireland has to deal with and 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 still lives with, and our editorial in today's Irish Times this morning certainly notes the historic moment that a nationalist party becomes the the largest party in Northern Ireland. I watched a very interesting segment on BBC Newsnight, so it was for a British audience on Friday night, which explained to BBC viewers that Northern Ireland was set up specifically set up to avoid this very eventuality. And I think that might have even come to a surprise to some of those viewers. So that is undoubtedly notable. But as the editorial points out, it's also very notable the rise of the of the centre in in the form of alliance. And where in the past there might have been in some sense on the national side an idea that demographics is destiny and that one form of majoritarianism might ultimately be replaced by another form of majoritarianism, we're now left with three minorities, aren't we? And that throws up all kinds of interesting questions, including whether you need this complicated, rather inefficient system to stop one majority oppressing a minority, given that there is no majority anymore. Can we not get back to something more akin to real democracy? Yeah, and, and this goes back to, we were talking at, at the, the start about the use of the word seismic, and I would argue that this is an, another one of the, the, the these points. And, you know, when, when you talk to the Alliance Party at, at, at the count centres over the weekend, you know, at one point, I mean, I mean it, it got to the stage where they couldn't keep count of the number of seats that they were in contention for. And one of the party officers said to me, he said, you know, I can't, put, we've never been in this, you know, I can't even remember which, which ones, you know, and he, he had had this, this list. Um, and, you know, the, the, the party, they were, they were almost quite literally speechless just because of, of, the, of the scale of, of the victory. And somebody else said, you know what's bigger than a surge? You know they've been talking about about a surge on on, on Friday afternoon. You know where, where where do we go? You know I heard tsunami being being used on on the radio this morning. Something really significant has shifted here, and and no disrespect to the Alliance Party when when I say this, and and, and they, they will say them, them say this themselves. There was always this sort of sense that the Alliance Party w- w- was a nice idea, you know, and, and people would you know years gone by, people would give the Alliance Party, you know, they'd give them maybe a preference somewhere down the line because it was sort of sort of a nice idea, and they were all seen as sort of you know you know Greater Belfast and sort of middle class and stuff. So it, it, it was a nice thing, you know, but they, they were never really sort of sort of in in, in contention. And, and funny, I, I spoke to. 
um, a lady, Moira Hendren, and her and her husband, Jim, were among the founders of the Alliance Party back in, in 1970. Uh, and she was at the Count Centre uh, and was, was really emotional, was almost in tears, actually, just, just to, to, to see this. And she told me this story about we, when we, we reflected earlier about how they've just elected their first um, MLA, first Alliance MLA in North Antrim, first woman in the constituency. She's a Catholic from, from Larne. Um, I mean, North Antrim, if there was ever a, a unionist stronghold, a Paisley stronghold, this was it. I mean, that you, you would you would never think that they would have had a chance in in, in some somewhere like like North Antrim. And she told this story about about going up to to canvas in 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 Ballymena, um, where the, the Fairhill Shopping Centre is now for people who, who who know it. But it was a cattle market at the time. Going up to canvas in the early seventies and and really not 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 making very much progress. And so they came back and said, her father said, well. If you can make it in Balamina, you, you'll you'll make it at anywhere. And she said, you know, well, you know, t- today, we, you know, we 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 have we have arrived, and you know, there the really is. I mean, from from eight seats, I mean, seventeen seats, third largest party in in the assembly now, leapfrogged the SDLP and and and, and the, the UUP, and and one of the things that this, I mean, such a strong mandate for for alliance and and for politics that is is non-aligned because the alliance doesn't designate themselves as unionist or nationalist in the assembly. So this, I mean. Alliance had been talking before the election about the need to reform the assembly assembly structures. Um, certain things that there's in, in certain matters there's a, there's a cross community voting system. Um, because Alliance isn't designated, they aren't in, included in in this in, in the way nationalist and unionist parties are, uh, and they've been making the case that this just isn't democratic that their votes don't count for as much as as a unionist or a nationalist vote. So I mean I mean this coupled with um, the, the the shakiness of the institutions, you know th- th- this. This is is really going to increase the call for 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 this to be to be looked at and and potentially to to reform the institutions, reform the political structures here because and this is probably a point for an, another day. But given um, the crisis after crisis that, that we've had, you know, there's a real debate to be had about what you know wh- whether this system is even working. The landscape that we had in 1998 is different to the landscape now, and, and I think one one of the things that the SDLP in particular, but also the UUP um, as well, to an extent, are, are going to have to to consider is the extent to which the ground that they are standing on has, has just disappeared and we've talked about you know some of the reasons that that, that there, there was a big vote for Sinn Féin maybe in the SDLP's vote went down but actually primarily the, the SDLP as well lost out in terms of seats to to the Alliance Party and Alliance also gobbled up I mean there were two green MLAs before we went into, into this election both of them lost their seats so so Alliance has actually gobbled up um, an awful lot of, the, of that middle ground so the SDLP are going to have to sit down and think, well, you know, where is our, our space? You know, where do we go go from here? And, and I think in, in terms of the broader point, I think anything that introduces more alternatives into that political landscape is a good thing. And I think when we talk about things like the prospect of a border poll, which has been, you know, discussed sort of in, in recent days in, in, in the wake of of Sinn Féin becoming the, the largest party, you know, if, if you if you have a substantial uh, third party which doesn't align itself as orange and, and green, which which doesn't take a position on, on the constitutional question, although some would say, well, that, that means that they, they favour the status quo. But you know, when we are getting to the question of a border poll, and remember, it's up to the, the, the Secretary of State to call that border poll if he thinks that there's, there's a majority in, in, in favour of, of unity. You know, 
that's going to come down to that roughly 20% in the middle. It's not going to come down to your TUV voter or, or your Sinn Féin voter. It's going to come down to that, that, that middle ground that doesn't align themselves, that, that doesn't see the constitutional question um, as, as the main thing. So that's something I, and I've made this point before. So it, in, in terms of where we go in the future, if you're a unionist and what you want is to preserve the union, you need to win over that middle ground. If you're a nationalist or a Republican and what you want is a united Ireland, then you also need to convince that middle ground of, of, the, of the benefits of it. So I think in, in the longer term, that's where the parties need to go. Yeah, I find that fascinating, Mary. I mean, nobody should be remotely surprised that, um, that the Sinn Féin leadership came out, reiterated their their ongoing calls for a process leading to a referendum on Irish unity within um within five years or thereabouts, I think is 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 exactly what they're looking for. No no surprise there at all. But I do wonder what the dynamic is, particularly if, as is quite likely, um Mary Lou Macdonald is Taoiseach within the next uh, within the next three or four years, what the dynamic is on the political landscape in Northern Ireland if that happens. And particularly on that centre ground where you know, you may not be unionist, but you may be pro-union. Or indeed, you may not be pro-Irish unity, but you may identify as as a nationalist. What effect does a does the prospect of a border poll have? Does that does that harden the camps back into their respective areas, or maybe does it shake it all up a bit more? Well, I think as Freya says, it's important to remember uh, that a border poll is not in the gift of Sinn Féin, and that a border poll is in the gift of the British. Uh, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. So that's an important point to keep in mind when we're discussing all this, although there's no doubt you're going to hear more and more talk about this. And uh, the emergence of the third block of alliance, uh, you know, I think Naomi Long will come under more pressure now about what she does actually think about this. She has to date very skillfully batted away any discussion about a United Ireland or a border poll or anything like that. And it's certainly worked uh, well for her. Um, She has very much tried to keep the focus throughout on bread and butter issues, on NHS, things like that. And, And in any, I suppose, normal or more normal society, the NHS would probably be the one and only issue because uh, a lot of people get very misty-eyed about the NHS and when it functions and when it's well-funded, it's an absolutely fantastic institution. But being on the cold, hard edge of it in Northern Ireland is very, very difficult for a lot of people. Um, So obviously that's going to be an issue as well. But, you know, I I think what you're going to see now is um, the alliance under Naomi Long, it's a surge now. It's not a blip um, for a, for a party that exposes very unthreatening politics. It has really managed to cannibalize an awful lot of other parties, like the light green of the SDLP, the light orange of the UUP. Uh, but not only, as Freya has mentioned, uh, not only those kind of centrist parties, other parties have suffered badly as well, like the Greens and the People Before Profit. People Before Profit, and I heard uh, John Tong, who I know you've talked to before. Uh, saying that those parties would be absolutely horrified to hear themselves described as centrists, you know, um, the Greens uh, and the people for profit certainly not, uh, would certainly not think of themselves as that way. But um, nevertheless, the the Alliance has managed to cannibalise a lot of that vote now. And, you know, it, it was once a party very much uh, Belfast centred or at least east of the ban, 
quite posh in some instances. You know, if you kind of think of anyone from the Alliance who's cut through from before, you might remember David Ford. You might be able to hear his voice in your head. But apart from that, there haven't been that many Alliance figures who've kind of cut through into the Republic and would be recognisable by people. You know, Naomi Naomi Long is not one of those people. She's very, very recognisable. She's an, an, East, an East Belfast woman born in the early 70s. We don't know an awful lot about her. We know she attended her father-in-law's funeral uh, in a Presbyterian church on the day of the election, but you won't hear her talking very much about religion. Um, You know, I don't know, is she the voice of, has she set herself up as a voice of reason or does she just have a very reasonable voice? Just someone who's, you know, ended up um, speaking in a way that has captured an awful lot of people and of course she has European experiences as well you know she her political experience hasn't been restricted to Northern Ireland so not perhaps an issue for this election but if this surge as we expect it does and the alliance vote continues what happens then to the institutions and I I do think that is something that's being considered in Dublin uh, certainly before the election that opinion poll in the Irish News which indicated a big surge to the alliance was reflected on quite a lot and I suppose you'd be naive to say that it doesn't suit Dublin to kind of focus on the surge of alliance and and maybe play down slightly the Sinn Féin success because at the end of the day um, you know the parties down here are competing for the position of Taoiseach Um, but uh, I think they're correct to look at the surge of the of the alliance and what it actually means for the future of the institutions in Northern Ireland will it mean a very deep look at the framework of power sharing because um, I suppose the thing is, will those alliance voters be adequately represented in in a new Stormont uh, in future? We're two and a half decades on now from when things were set up, when uh, I suppose all people could see was orange and green. They couldn't ever imagine a, a third way. But things have changed now. And if those people who... Um, either lent their vote to Alliance or are wholeheartedly committed to the Alliance this time, if they end up feeling disgruntled, if we get to a position, as I say, not a matter for this this assembly, but if we get to a position where the Alliance got itself into second place, but um, they couldn't take the Deputy First Minister position because it wasn't one of these designations of, of nationalist or unionist, how disgruntled would those voters feel? So, you know, not talking about dismantling the institutions, but taking a, a, a sort of a deep look at the at the framework that exists and seeing what can be done to tweak it to reflect a new reality. Finally, Pat, maybe you could give me an All Ireland view of what the implications of the results this this weekend are. I mean, the Irish government has a couple of different roles here, doesn't it? It it it. it puts itself forward as an honest broker to some extent, but it's also composed of three political parties uh, in government and Sinn Féin is by far the main opposition party. And as I said earlier, is the largest party in the country, the most popular party in the, in the country by, by a long way now. So there is the impact of what happens in the North on the, on the situation in, the, in this state too, isn't there? How does all that play out and how does that drive politics in the South? There is though... Northern Irish politics and the affairs of Northern Ireland have tended not to matter that much in uh, in Southern politics. Now, you know, just like lots of things have changed in our politics over the last 25, 30 years, that may be about to change too. And if and when the executive is reformed in the North and it is led by, uh, by Sinn Féin, then 
you know, I, I think that how that administration performs is likely to be watched more closely south of the border than, uh, than, than it might have been previously. I mean, there's no, there's no question that, you know, one of the primary all Ireland effects, if you like, is that it increases this, you know, remarkable momentum that Sinn Fein have achieved at the last election here and, uh, and since the last election to the extent that, you know, they are now odds on to lead the next government, even though that election is two to three years away. And, you know, as we've discussed before, I think the party has yet to identify it. It's, it's route to, uh, to government in, uh, in the South. But there's no question that becoming the largest party, occupying the first minister's office, if that's what happens, will increase that that momentum for Sinn Féin. Interesting question, I suppose, when we talk about the scrutiny of, uh, of, of how that administration, if it is set up, performs, because of course it's Sinn Féin's stated position that the, you know, that Northern Ireland is a failed state. So now the party will find itself leading a failed state, which is, I suppose, an interesting, uh, an interesting conundrum for it. And the question that has been often asked before about Sinn Féin's stewardship of the executive in the north is, you know, does it really want Northern Ireland to work? Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that question is likely to, uh, to come to the fore in future. More broadly, I think, and I'll finish on this, is that the, the lessons for politics in the south i think one of the one of the primary lessons from this vote is that you know the the principal concerns of voters are very often got to do with you know the basic services that government provides and those central distributional questions of 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 politics how governments manage health and education and public services and 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 housing where it spends where it raises cash and where it spends it and how much to do of of both in other words how the actions of government affect the daily lives of citizens are very often the primary prism through which electoral decision making uh, is is done and just as that was the case in uh, in the north uh, last week I, I i think that is likely to be the the case in the south for the next election we'll leave it there for now thanks very much to pat and to freya and to mary and to our producer declan conlon uh, we're going to be back very soon you can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com with your thoughts your questions or even your complaints but until the next time thanks very much indeed for listening <laughs> 